I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to today's exclusive episode of the Capital Club Podcast. We have another special episode from the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast, where I speak with Tyler Cobble and a number of other commercial real estate investment professionals. So if you're interested in learning how the capital raising process works or how to scale your real estate investments and buy bigger properties, then you definitely want to keep listening. We'll be covering everything from how we find investors, pitch these individuals or potential investors on placing capital into the projects, as well as best practices for beginners that are looking to bring private investors to the table on their deals. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. And as always, let us know your feedback and if you have any questions. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we're going to be diving into Raising Capital 101. So if you're looking at growing your real estate investments, you're going to have to start raising private capital from investors at some point, because let's be honest, money is a finite resource. So what we're going to cover the the ins and outs of raising capital for your first deal, some tips on how to pitch your deal, put it together so that investors will actually want to give you money, right? And then we'll give you some war stories and some best practices from our experiences. So Brian, Logan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, guys. Well, Logan, let's kick it off with you this week. Tell us tell us about your first capital raise. Yeah. I mean, the first capital raise was an absolute disaster. You get into this thing and you know you read a lot of the books and you understand the ideas and, and what you need to do. But I think you grossly, or at least I grossly underestimated the amount of time and the amount of people that I actually needed to speak to to be able to get capital in, mostly because you are raising, if you're getting started, similar to myself, I mean, you're raising on relationship, right? And so you have to have really strong relationships that are going to be able to feel comfortable and trust you enough to move into that first opportunity with you, regardless of 
the opportunity itself. It could be the best deal possible and you're still going to have some challenges. So I think the first real equity raise that we did was on a smaller multifamily complex here in Kansas City back in 2019. I'll actually remove the previous two that I worked on because they were so niche and very unique. And maybe I'll circle back to those at some point, but much much more from a straightforward standpoint was this 37-unit apartment complex. And what I learned was kind of two things. The first one that is, is eyeballs. So the amount of eyeballs I need to have on an email, I just thought that I was going to send an email and people were going to respond and, and it'd all be great. But no, you have to have a funnel. And I'll describe this funnel here very shortly. But the first thing was just like the amount of people I needed to have to look at this opportunity. But then I thought I wanted to describe every single little detail of the project and how we were going to implement every little piece of the business plan. And what happened was I ended up making the deal, even though it wasn't, I made it too complex. It was, and there was too many cool things that we could do to this project. And what I found out was you need to have a vanilla project with a little bit of icing on top. And what I tried to bring was a bunch of icing with some vanilla cake thrown on there as well. And, and it just kind of confused people because it's not what they do on a regular basis necessarily. And so I had been ingrained in the commercial real estate industry for so long and had done so many transactions. I took for granted that people just knew what I was speaking about and they got it really quickly. And so as I'm talking, I'm just, I'm seeing eyes just glaze over and people just saying like, wait, just slow down a second. And so I think that what we do now and how we try to put these deal narratives together, because I love to write these things out because one, it helps me learn, right? I think that if I have to write out every single piece of every single deal and know the square footages and the comparable properties and all of those different pieces that you need to know, it helps solidify that in my own brain. But then I have to make that very simple for the investor that I'm speaking to. And so we've really made it pretty, almost like for like an eighth grader that they could understand what we're trying to accomplish with the project. And then if somebody asks, and I, I kind of have a, a three-prong approach, it's What's the downside mitigation? So the risk mitigation, what's the upside potential? And then if we get to it, then I talk about the unseen benefits. And I think that's a good framework that people can kind of take away and utilize. However, I wanted to start previously on my first capital raise with those unseen benefits and then talk about the upside potential. And then if we had time, get to the downside protection. And so I flip-flopped kind of that the order of those in the pitches and the communications that we do. And that seems to be much more receptive to investors these days than just telling them all the cool things that you're going to do on these projects. So long story short, I mean, it took, we had two months to do the project. It took me four months to actually raise the capital. It took over 2,500 calls to get that done. And it took probably, I mean, I'd say 50 hours or so of my time directly on the phone, meeting with individuals to get them feeling comfortable with the project. And we still own that project today and it's done well, but it was a grind. And I learned a lot from that first one, especially around how to communicate the deal points for each project. I love it. Thanks for going so in depth. Brian, what about you? How was, I know you've talked a little bit about your first capital raise, but how was it kind of compared to what you were expecting it to be? Yeah, total disaster. This is 2010. So I had just got into the real estate business. And frankly, I don't think I even knew what questions to ask. For whatever reason, we had decided to raise a fund just because we thought that's what real estate professionals did. So we had this blind pool 
commingled fund, which just explaining to people how the fund worked took up three quarters of the pitch, which just means it's a really bad pitch, right? If people are confused about return of capital and capital calls. Is it going to be ordinary income? Is it going to be capital gains? Is it a pass-through entity? Do I have to be an accredited investor or a qualified purchaser? And I was so naive that I didn't even, it would take me a couple of days to respond to those type of questions, right? And so I was totally unprepared. It was a huge learning experience. We were racing to raise enough capital to close our first acquisition in Music Row, which I talked about last episode. And so we Barely got the last $50,000 check-in to close that one acquisition. I want to say we raised, gosh, just over a million dollars, but it took me months. And these are folks that I knew, right? And this kind of to Logan's point, the differential between when you go to people and you talk about what you're planning on doing and they're excited and they're saying, sure, this sounds great, definitely like to learn more, to when you actually ask them for capital is like the Atlantic Ocean, the differential there. <laughs> because when you show up and you ask from a place, especially if you are in a position of need and people can smell that desperation and fear off of you, it doesn't give them a lot of confidence that you're going to be able to execute on this plan. And so it just was an unmitigated disaster across the board. I was completely unprepared. And again, I'm old. We didn't have resources like podcasts or books really to even understand how to start raising capital or how to think about marketing or even though we were raising a fund, it was really just syndication, how to do syndication. And so there was really a, a dearth of resources available to us. We've come a long way, obviously, but it was very painful. And I would just second Logan's other comment, which is hugely inefficient amount of time spent both on me and the investor, right? The investor didn't even have enough information to know if they're an easy pass or they're interested. I wasn't giving them enough to know. So I was wasting their time and my time. Logan, did you say how much your first capital raise was? It was 750000 Man, that's I was going to say, I had a completely opposite experience of you guys, but I only raised about $100,000. So it's a totally different game once you start getting, I mean, honestly, above $100,000, right? Because my first capital raise, I could have had one investor do that. I ended up having two guys write a check for $50,000 each off of the first two text messages that I sent. And that was 100% based on just the relationships that I had built over the, I think at this point, six years that I'd been in commercial real estate. That's one thing that I think a lot of, of newer people take for granted because you get asked the question all the time, like, should I be raising capital or should I be finding deals first? I think that you should have started building relationships years ago. And hopefully you've got plenty of relationships that you can kind of lean on for your first one. But I'm right there with you guys on my second one. Total disaster. We ended up raising about $450,000 for an office acquisition. And I had three or four guys pull out the week before closing because one of the guys that was investing with us was a, a residential guy, owned like over 100 homes. And he just decided last minute, he was like, you know what? I don't understand office space. So I'm getting out of it. And then he called three other guys that had committed to invest in this and said, I'm not investing in this deal because I don't get it. Y'all shouldn't either. And they all backed out because they all got scared. And so here we are a week before closing. I'm scrambling. We end up pulling it together. But man, that was the most stress I'd ever been through at the time. I mean, I've been through way worse capital raises now. But I think there's no such thing as an easy capital raise. I mean, capital raises get easier over... I mean, okay, let me rephrase that. Capital raises may not be or may not have as many hurdles 
in the future because you've built these relationships, you've built a track record, but they're always difficult. And I think that they're always stressful. I mean, it, Logan, how do you feel every time you go into a capital raise? Are you like, this is for sure getting done because I've got such a great group of investors? Or is it still one of those like, hey, yeah, we're going to have to really bust our tails to make sure this happens? I think that we try to take the approach of let's make this as palatable as possible and have the most successful launch that we possibly can leading up to the live webinar that we do. The results are not really in our control, and hopefully we've done the work up to this point that would allow for them to be positive. But, you know, you are always raising capital for a project when something isn't right in the economy, right? It's the, it's, there's always a reason that somebody isn't going to invest in a project. What I have found is that those reasons are excuses. And if you can try to get those excuses out early on or objections, right? Jeb Blunt wrote a great book, multiple great books, but one literally called Objections. And so we try to really tailor our marketing around what those objections are going to be and then hit them head on. And so that's, that's kind of the approach that we've taken. There's not any capital raise. We just launched a project last week. And there's no capital raise that I've gone into and said, man, we've got this in the back. This is going to go great. And we're 100% there. I think if you have that mentality, you're going to, we're on a timetable time here, right? I mean, every real estate deal is time is of the essence. And so unless you take every single approach that you can to make sure that you're successful, you have to be really careful because if you go in overconfident, then one big person or one big investor or one idea that you had that thought was going to work doesn't work out, now you're scramble mode, right? So I've tried to take the approach of, okay, what are investors going to object to? Not just from a deal perspective, but from a economic perspective. That's why Brian is probably writing around all these reasons around the, the global macroeconomic environment and climate, not just flex industrial real estate deals in the Southeast. That's, I mean, that's very important because as you raise the sophistication of your investors, they're thinking about different things. And so one thing that I've done, I think, well over the four or five years that we've been in this business doing it is really analyzing ourselves and analyzing our investor based and then trying to position ourselves to make sure that we're playing in the right sandbox. And if some of these terms are, I guess, familiar to people, it's because Richard C. Wilson of the Family Office Club wrote a book called Raising Private Capital. And I think his framework of analyze, position, architect, execute, and iterate is extremely beneficial for individuals who are looking into this. It's I, I think it's a free book online. If you want the paper copy, he's got to drop ship it to you. So you got to pay $11.99, but you can download the PDF easily online. And that book kind of really changed my perspective on this because we needed to understand what our real, like what our choke points were. And he kind of describes that as something that you control that other groups don't, that's your unique you know, perspective and or unique value proposition. And so for us, it really was, okay, well, we're Kansas City focused, we're Midwest focused. There's fewer groups that are doing deals just in a four-state region. And here's why that's beneficial to uh, you, the investor. So really tried to, to bring the fact that we were these Midwest experts on the different property types that we're doing to the investor. And so analyzing ourselves, analyzing the investor group, because then you know our investors started to get more sophisticated and they started to write larger checks. And so then they started asking more about interest rates and the Fed. And so I had to go read books around what is the Federal Reserve? And I started buying economic books and trying to understand supply and demand from a really macro level. And then I wrote, read microeconomic books. And so that helped me analyze ourselves, our investor base, and then position ourselves in the right sandbox to communicate those choke points. And then we focused mostly on the architecture 
or architect of the deal funnel. And we can speak to that here in a bit, but that's kind of how we have approached this thing. So I think that if you just blindly go out there and just say, I'm going to communicate this deal to all the people I know, and they're going to they're going to invest with me. That's probably not going to be the truth. I mean, frankly, we didn't really start with friends and family. We started with the business network that we had and built up over the the four or five years previous to that, not necessarily just going to friends and family. Sure, they were interested. And, and so we had conversations with them. But banking on that, I think, is a bad strategy. So, And people want to know that you've thought through different scenarios as well on these things. So I think just to button this up, I'll let Brian talk, but to analyze yourself, analyze the people that you're speaking to and the positioning your company and your deal into your certain choke point is extremely important for people to really grasp the why behind it. Because the framework we always take is why this deal? Why now? How are we going to actually implement this? And then what? Early on, again, I'll iterate the fact that I started with the what, I forgot about the why, and then I talked nothing but the how right? So I got stuck in what Oren Clough calls the analyst brain really early on, instead of the, here's the big thesis, here's the big picture. And then let's talk about the what, or sorry, that what and the how here in the near future. So yeah, I think that's, but no, there's no time that I've ever really hit launch on a capital raise and said, man, we got this thing in the bag. I wish that was the case. Yeah, Brian, I want to get your thoughts on that too. But real quick, I want to touch on something that Logan said. As general partners, as deal sponsors, it is imperative that you are constantly looking at growing and constantly learning. I mean, Logan does a great job of telling you all books every time we talk, what books you should be reading. And uh, honestly, Logan, I'm waiting for you to create the your book event or Logan's library, something where we could just follow along with whatever you're reading so we can start buying those too. But you had talked about like, it, there's never a good time to raise capital. I mean, almost everything that I've learned about treasury bonds has been something that Brian has been writing about here recently, because I have never had to even remotely face something like a treasury bond with my level of investors. Most of them are not your hyper-sophisticated multimillionaires that are, are raking in seven figures a year and understand the markets in and out. But we've recently gotten to that level where we have investors that are going, they've got $100 million in cash. They're trying to figure out what to do with it. And they're going, yeah, but I can just buy T-bonds at 5% and take zero risk and sit here and wait for a little while. And so I was like, well, damn, now I got to go learn how to counter that because I didn't know. And of course, Brian puts out a lot of incredible information on LinkedIn. You guys should go follow him so you can see some of that content. But Brian, I want to get your thoughts on how you feel going into capital raises. Yeah. So just to kind of respond to your last point, it's a very fair objection in today's market. And so the way that we position it is you want to maintain your purchasing power, which we could get into later. But that's exactly the point here, which I think is early on what I see from a lot of sponsors and managers who are not used to raising private capital is they start with what I call is the ego pitch. Like I went to these great schools. I have this experience. I found this wonderful deal. I think this deal is great. And then they go out to market, shotgun it to their friends and family, and they try to cram it down their throats, right? Whereas the empathy pitch which is kind of what I detailed last session, where you go out to the market of people that theoretically might give you capital and you figure out what their problems are. And then you position your widget to be a solution set to their problems. And you start with their issues first and how your offering could potentially be a solution set to their problems may not be the most exciting thing in the world, the most exciting, sexy way to raise capital, but I promise you it's more efficient. 
And to Logan's point, we're talking about efficiencies here because across my career, my conversion rate is around one to three to five percent, depending on the circle that you're in terms of first, second, or third degree. So on some level, you really are talking about kind of what the denominator is. And it's a numbers game on your conversion because if you want to be in this business, and this is what I tell young people who kind of ping me to have coffee or talk, and they say, oh yeah, like I want to be a principal, I want to be on the buy side. And I just always say, stop. If you're going to work as a syndicator or a small fund manager, you are on the sell side every day. You wake up in the morning and you're selling yourself, you're selling your product, you're selling your company to brokers, to investors, to service providers, to anybody. And you better have that mindset when you wake up in the morning because you're going to get crushed every day. And I think it's hard for people, like I send an email out, we have about 5,000 people on our distribution list that are accredited investors. We maybe get 25 to 50 people to participate in any given offering, which is great. And I love my investors. But if you think about it, that means I'm having 90 to 95% of the people who I think I know straight up tell me no or just don't respond to me. And like you do that year over year, day over day, and it will mess with your head if you don't have the right framework about being told no all the time. But if you're not getting no's, you're not making enough asks. And that's just the business that we chose to be in. And it's very difficult, I think, because a lot of people, if you don't take your capital raising process seriously, why would the people that you're pitching take you seriously? And that was something I didn't really understand early in my career. And we've come a long way in terms of the funnels and the systems and the processes and the sophistication that we have. But it was born out of a lot of scar tissue for sure. And so every time that we launch a deal, I'm very pessimistic. I'm probably the worst critic. I always think it's going to be super challenging and like, maybe we can't do this. Maybe this is just not the right time. It's too much of a stretch. But unless you are going to market consistently, you're never going to get better and learn. And we've always improved our process and systems when it's been like the most grueling capital raises, because that's really when you figure out what works and doesn't work. And unfortunately, there is a direct correlation between the things that people don't want to do and how effective they are. Like everybody just wants to send an email or post it on a message board or find one investor and like that's the deal. And that's your unlocked your capital raise. The reality is it's going to take a huge amount of text messages, phone calls, coffee meetings, planes, trains, and automobiles to get this thing done. That's the most effective way to do it. People just don't want to do it. And they don't really want to hear that either. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we're trying to figure out how we can start sending our investors homing pigeons and smoke signals because it's like you you literally have to do everything you possibly can because sometimes people just don't even look at the email until the fifth one they get. And it's like, man, if you only sent them four emails, then you're not going to get that capital. And it's just because they're busy or whatever else is going on. Yeah, I want to speak to that, Tyler. Yeah, yeah, go it's for it. It's not even the capital. It's the attention. We're all buying for attention. And we live in the attention world now. And unfortunately, and fortunately, we can send text messages. We have emails. We have phone calls. We can send video messages. We can get on Instagram and send DMs. We have LinkedIn. We have Facebook. We have all of these different modes, which is good because you think you can reach people easier. But then you realize that if it's not the top of their list 
in regards to what they're giving attention to, it does not matter. It could be the perfect deal. It could change their life and it could do all this amazing things for them. But if you don't grab their attention, then you're not going to get the time that you need to actually explain it. And so we're vying for attention. And I don't think people want to hear that either. And that's why I think if you're serious about doing this and actually raising capital, you have to be everywhere all of the time. And to do that is extremely, and to do that in a way that is authentic and effective is extremely tiresome and it takes a lot of, of time. You think you want to do real estate? Well, guess what? You're now in the marketing business, you're now in the communications business, and now you're in the sales business to get capital to do your projects. And so that's, it's a double-edged sword because if you're not the top of the list, and I found the most effective thing is to just call people and leave voicemails. And if they don't call me back by the second or third call, they're out, right? I know they've received it. It's literally a notification on their phone. A text message, they'll wipe away, no big deal. But a phone call, there's something visceral about seeing hey, Logan left me a voicemail and I feel bad about not returning that or at least sending him a text message and saying, hey, it's not the right, right? Some people will have just no regard for it regardless, but I do think it still takes a lot of direct outreach. And honestly, this is kind of why we see the marketers that we do and why their marketing is so aggressive is because they're trying to catch your attention. And they might have the worst deal possible, but they might be the best marketer ever and get more attention than the person who, has been doing it for 50 years, it's probably a home run that has no idea how to get anybody's attention. They probably don't need the attention, right? Because they've got their own capital, their own sources. But I just wanted to make that really apparent today. It's very difficult to get people's attention regardless of what social media you are on. So, And I've looked at this seven ways to Sunday and trying to track where the leads are coming from. And I've just decided that the more action that you can take and the more visibility that you can get, the better. Because I might do this show and I might do four other ones this month and they come through on my my webpage as a new lead and they just say podcast. And then you have to then call that person and say, hey, where did you hear me from? Oh, by the way, where'd you? Because I'm genuinely interested and they won't even remember what podcast or show they heard you on. So again, if you're not serious about basically having a small marketing business and trying to get capital into your business for that, then it's not something for you. And, and it takes time, but it also takes you know, money and a team to do that. And Tyler, it's why you've written books and you have all these different mediums for people to engage with you. When I think about Nashville real estate, I think about these two guys right here on this show for a good reason, but that didn't just happen overnight. And so that's why when you're on LinkedIn and you search Logan Freeman, it says Mr. Kansas City. And I can't tell you how many random conversations that has gotten going for me because people will say, well, what about Patrick Mahomes? And then boom, we're off to. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I say that all the time. You're Just because you're in real estate doesn't mean you're in sales. You're marketing, right? Because yes. you're probably never going to be the best syndicator out there. I know that I won't, right? But we have really good projects that bring really good returns. I think above average returns. But we've got a better, broader reach than what most other people have. So it's not necessarily how good you are. It's how many people know about you, right? I mean, I, I've been using this analogy since I was in high school because I was obsessed with guitar and I used to watch guitar videos all the time. And I, I can't remember who told me this, but they were like, the greatest guitarist will never be known because he sits in his room and never plays for anybody. 
And so, I mean, that has just always sat with me like, wow, I mean, you're probably right. The greatest guitarist will never be known. So let's- Yeah, it's like look Oliver Anthony, right? I mean, this is a perfect example and quite really interesting uh, case study of what's going on right now. You got a guy, where's he from, Tyler? I'm sure he's Georgia. I don't know. Yeah. Well, he's on 90 acres. No, it's in, he's in Virginia. That's right. He's on 90 acres in Virginia. He starts strumming a guitar and belting out a song and then Joe Rogan hears him. Right. And says, man, I want to enter that, that guy's something unique. And then, boom, the guy is top song, beats out Luke Combs on Spotify and the, for the top song in, in two weeks. Right. Because I mean, that's exactly it. So back to the choke points, if you can figure out what yours is, that guy was interesting because he was one, his lyrics were interesting, but two, he had a good voice. He didn't look like a lot of the, the guys that you might see out there. And then somebody picked him up because he put it out there on Instagram, videoing himself. So I think that the other part about this is having the confidence to actually take that step and put yourself out there. I can't tell you how many times my wife has said, there's no way I could do what you do because all you do is speak in front of a camera, talk to people all the time about what you can do and and what you know you're you are doing. And that's just not that's not for me. So there and that's not to say there's not general partners out there that are behind the scenes, but I guarantee you they have a right-hand man or woman that is exposing them in a, in a really good way and bringing them in when the time is right to to talk to investors. So I just wanted to kind of put that point out there. Yeah, I, I think that's great. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. We've got a bunch of comments in the live chat. I want to make sure we acknowledge these real quick. Alex is saying solution selling, going back to your comments there, Brian, about tailoring your your investor pitch to each individual investor. I think that's great. Uh, if it doesn't resonate, it doesn't matter. A lot of people want to make money, but they also want to enjoy what they do and work with people they enjoy. So I, I completely agree with that. Let's see. We've got a couple of other comments. Uh, Texan, I'll get to yours. And uh, Joe Carrera, I'll get to yours here in a minute too. But this next one kind of leads into the next part I want to go into in the in the show. It's from Cold Turner. So hi, my name is Cold Turner. I'm a graduate this May 2024. I'm very interested in commercial real estate development, uh, multifamily specifically. I was wondering what I could do now to help in the future when it comes time to raise capital for prospected projects. So I think the question there is like, how do you find investors? If you're just starting out, how do you go about building that Rolodex so that in two, three, four years when Cole is ready, he can hit the ground running? So I think the best time to raise is when you're not raising. And if I was Cole or somebody in a similar situation, what I would, if I could go back in time and kind of redo this, I would be really thoughtful and focused on what my ideal customer profile is, like who my avatar is, who I want to serve. Because the problems that an institutional capital partner have are very different from what a high net worth individual might be facing. And if you are trying to service both of those avatars, it's going to be really challenging for you to have a cohesive narrative and a product type that will fill both of the buckets for those folks. So Cole, if you're listening, I would figure out who you want to work with, right? I would do some market research. Do you want to work with individuals and families? Do you want to work with institutional funds? 
you want to work with JV partners and private equity 9010 allocator groups, whatever it is, there's a huge ecosystem of capital partners out there. I'd really figure out who you want to work with and why. And then I would just spend as much time where they're spending time as possible. Like, so for me, for instance, we'll try and network with individuals and families. I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the New York Times. I read the Financial Times. I read The Economist. I, in, I go to the beach in the summer, the same place that a lot of these folks go to. I go skiing where a lot of these groups go to because most of the conversation initially is a screening call. Does Brian have the right network that I feel comfortable progressing beyond this 10 minutes? Do we know the same people? Are we members of the same clubs? Do we go to the same places? Is he a member of the same affinity groups? Does he have the same interests, right? So for me, talking with Ultra High Net Worth Individual, it's a very smooth conversation. Generally speaking, we're going to have some commonalities and touch points in how we live our lives. But if you were to have me go and pitch the Harvard Endowment, which I did once and it was a total disaster, but I did get the, I got the meeting. It was a complete- It was pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a different story, but that was a terrible pitch, right? And it would be today too, because I don't really know what problems endowments are facing or even like what check size I want to write or what type of deals they're looking at because it's not my world, right? So I would be really honest with yourself about who you feel comfortable being, who you want to work with, and then start small. Like, well, the nice thing is social media is free. So you can build out your brand, you can build out your presence and your footprint, you can provide insight, hot takes, content like Logan with his books, right? You can do all that for free, just take some time. And then you can build an email distribution list pretty cheaply as well and maintain it. But I can promise you the biggest thing that people just don't do across the board, you can listen to this show for an hour. People who actually do it, like the consistency of sending out a monthly newsletter, we've been doing it for years, posting on LinkedIn every day. If you just do the really simple, basic stuff consistently, and it's like being on a diet or working out, adherence is the biggest key. It's not necessarily what you do. It's your ability to adhere day in, day out. You will be top decile if you just are consistent. Yeah, I think it's all about the consistency, right? I mean, when I started the podcast, when I started the YouTube channel, we committed to doing one a week for at least a year before we even started looking at our analytics, right? Because you've just got to, you just got to do it. The first time, your first 10 investor pitches are going to be awful. Your first 20, 30, 40, 50 are probably not going to be that great. But you need all that practice so that on 51 or whatever it ends up being, you just absolutely crush it and you're comfortable enough with yourself to, to make it happen. And Brian, real quick, before we get to Logan, I want to recognize you for what you're doing on this front, right? Because the Capital Club podcast is 100% directed at your target customer in a completely different way than your typical commercial real estate podcast, right? Like my podcast is almost 100% specifically commercial real estate. Whereas the guests that you're bringing on, they're experts in tax strategies, investing, foreign investments. I mean, you've had some really interesting different people onto the podcast, which is very beneficial for private family offices and how they decide to diversify their portfolios. And, and I actually posted about this, I think at some point, or maybe it's going to release, but 
a few things. But yes, thank you for recognizing that. The nice thing about getting your avatar right is even though it takes a little bit of time on the front end, it saves you so much time on the back end because now you don't have to pitch like 99% of the universe. You can ignore all that noise. Like I don't take meetings with private equity groups, allocator funds, JV partners, institutional LPs, even really qualified purchasers. It's not my universe, right? So like I don't have to worry about that. And then to your point about the show, I literally will just read the New York Times, the Journal, the Economist, Financial Times, whatever, and I'll just look for quotes. I'll read the article and I'll say, oh, that's an interesting topic. Like I've heard my LPs complain about investing into mining interests. I don't know anything about that. And I'll say, okay, this article is about mining interests. And then I'll just look for quotes. And then I'll figure out who's the attributable person giving the quote. And I'll hit them up on LinkedIn and I'll say, hey, man, I really enjoyed your commentary in the Wall Street Journal. I would like to connect. And then 24 hours later, 24 hours later, I hit him with, I actually have a podcast directed towards ultra high net worth individuals and family office private investors. Would you be interested in coming on and being a subject matter expert? Boom. Like my conversion rate's super, super high on that, right? But again, you've got to be focused on like what you're doing because if you're all things to all people, you're going to fail. And it's going to take up a ton of your time. Logan, what about you? What advice would you have for somebody just getting started? All right. So I would say you need an investor acquisition system. And you can do this at any point in time. And the earlier, the better, because you're going to be able to get to that iteration phase much faster uh, than if you do it later. But to Brian's point, I would say you need to understand that working for a big business, uh, a large real estate developer and raising capital is different than going and raising capital for your own either fund of funds or your own projects. Because one, the way that you have to do that is different, but two, the way that you might have to communicate is different to that as well. But being able to aggregate a number of interested investors and capable investors after you have your avatar is what I'm going to speak to. And I'm not going to take credit for this. Adam Gower with Gower Crowd has put this together. It's a free graphic out there. Just search investor acquisition system. And it starts with reputation, visibility, and leadership. And the way that you do that is LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, podcasts, everything that you can think of, of where you need to be, where people will be engaging. Or you also, you can also become a a scratch golfer and join your local club because there will be plenty of guys there playing all the time saying, hey, what the heck is this kid doing beating me in golf and how? And they will be, they will want to try to play you, no joke. And you will be out there playing golf with guys who can introduce you to 50 other guys and they're all going to say, hey, let's play golf next Friday. So I do, I've raised a lot of capital from country clubs. I'm not a scratch golfer, but I do shoot, you know, at an 11 handicap and that's good enough for me to get into a lot of these different tournaments and playing with these guys who I can't fathom of like, what did you do that it's a Tuesday at 11 o'clock and you're playing golf and you're here on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday as well. There is something to be said about that too. But if you're in school and you can't do that, you can't be on the golf course and you don't have that network, that's where I started. Then you can get to this investor acquisition system, which again, starts on the social medias, but then you have it, you have to think about the investor journey. And so that, this is very awesome because we now have AI, artificial intelligence that will help you build out these campaigns and even help you write these emails. And there's free email clients like Constant Contact. I use ActiveCampaign 
And each time somebody raises their hand and says, yeah, I'd be interested in learning more about what Logan is doing in Kansas City, they are entered into a campaign that they engage with. And based on their engagement, they're moved to different sections of the campaign along the investor journey. And at some point, they're going to have a lead score, right? They're going to be scored to a point of saying, hey, this person's opened seven emails. They've clicked five of them. They've spent 30 seconds on this web page. This is probably what their hot topics are. We think that based on your criteria, they're ready for a phone call. And then the investor relations team will actually reach out to them once they're warmed up. After that first phone call, which is very structured, and I have uh, a lot of resources in regards to what needs to happen on that first phone call, if it moves forward two weeks later, after we follow up with more emails and text messages, I'm getting on the phone with this individual. So there's an investor journey where they have to know, like, and trust you. You're going to hear that a lot, the KLT kind of framework, right? Know, like, and trust. And the way that you can build that is through educational content and showing that you're out there putting the work in. And then there's all kinds of different lead generation, the call to action, whether that be an ebook that you write, your take on the current market, what you're doing on a regular basis, what you're learning in school, Cole, right? Like, hey, I'm finishing up school right now and this is what's being taught in there. And I want to talk to you about Mr. or Mrs. Investor about is this something that's realistically going to, that I'm going to engage with in the real world when I get out into the actual marketplace? So you have that whole communication journey, the investor journey, the no like and trust, and then you have some sort of call to action where they are, you know, hopefully you have something, right? You have that widget that Brian has spoke about previously that solves their problems. And you might, have, might not have a deal right now to do that, and that's okay. But for example, investors, that when we don't have a deal, we have what's called a portfolio allocation model and or framework that we actually use David Swinson's model. I believe he was from Yale. Brian, keep me, keep me uh, honest there. But he put the portfolio allocation model together that helped them beat the market for a long time. That's public out there of what he did. And so we just distilled that into an actionable worksheet that people can go through. They can watch the 50-minute webinar. They can write down where they have their investments. All right, gives, gives them a score and where they need to focus on. And after they go through that, then we can have a call. All of this sounds like it can, can happen in a week. It takes months. It takes months. So don't think that like an investor is going to do this all at one time and they're going to be like, oh my gosh, you're going to have all these investors. It might take somebody seven days. It might take somebody seven months, just depending on what their, when their time frame is. But that's a way that we continue to raise while we're not raising and we bring them through this journey. But I think that uh, what you can do currently now is definitely go follow Adam Gower. He puts out a lot of resources and free stuff and investor acquisition system. Careful, Adam's a, a master at uh, capturing your dollars and he's captured a lot of mine <laughs> as well. He's a master. So, but mimic him, right? Engage with his content because what he's teaching you, you're actually going to be going through. And that's what you're going to need to go through with your own investor. So the best way that I've actually learned is not paying for a lot of these courses. I have paid for a lot of them, but I never actually went to anything. I just signed up, saw how they got me to sign up. I wrote, wrote down all of the different steps that I took and or I didn't take. And then I created my own frameworks and campaigns based off of that. But to, to distill that all into one actual thing is you need a place where people can engage with you on a regular basis where you not only get their email, you have to get their phone number, right? Get their phone number and make sure that you're reading and or engaging with with content out there. I can't tell you how many investors have written multiple six-figure checks with, checks with us and have no idea what's going on in the world. It's crazy. They are in their business. They're working hard. They've got family of six kids. Like They don't have time to read the Wall Street Journal. 
or the New York Times or whatever it is. So bring that to them. Distill that down into a couple bullet points or a video or some some sort of engageable content and follow up with them about that, but make, make sure that you're capturing their information. And when you do decide that, hey, I'm going to go launch my own fund or I'm going to participate in this project or I'm going to go work with somebody, even if you don't do go work with a big developer like Tyler or somebody like that, Tyler, if somebody came to you and said, hey, I'm really interested on the capital raising side, for the last five years, I've built up a list of 3,000 investors. I think about 1,500 of them are probably accredited investors from the polls that I've sent them. And I have hot buttons for each one of those. I think that's a pretty good hire that somebody I might think, be I, interested in. You're right. I think it'd be hiring them on the spot. Yeah. I mean, that might be hiring them on the spot, right? Because they've shown initiative, but then also they're bringing some value to an organization. So I think that's, a, that's where I would start. And that's exactly what I would do. And I sort of did this Back in 2014, with a WordPress blog, I just started writing book reviews of the books that I was reading, and it got 2,700 followers out of nowhere. And then guess what? I took all those emails because I captured them, and then that was the start of my newsletter monthly that I wrote for about eight years. And so that's kind of how... Jessica Prophet is in real estate development here in Nashville. She commented, this is such great information. How many women are on the golf course with you? Logan, sounds like next time you come to Nashville, we've got to get a, a group together and go out golfing. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. And I, believe it or not, I do play with quite a few women out on the golf course and they are a lot of fun and a lot better than me. Yeah. I'm a terrible golfer. I enjoy it, but I need to get better so that investors don't go, yeah, we're absolutely not investing with that guy whenever I'm out on the golf course. Let's, let's dive in. One thing about, about golf is if yeah. you're bad, just don't be slow. And that's all there yeah. is to it. If you can be bad and be slow, but pick your ball up and get moving to the next hole and say, hey, I'm good to go. Let's rock. Keep ball. everybody moving. Yep. That's it. Okay. So let's talk about deal structures because that is typically, in my experience, the biggest question mark that people will have when it comes to when it comes to these deals because they don't know how much do I need to pay an investor? How much do investors want? What do investors want to see? Texan has a question that says, in general, do you try to offer a certain percentage return for the investors per year or do you give them a percent of ownership? What are y'all's takes on different deal structures? Because I know everybody's got a different one. Brad, I'll let you kick it off. Yeah. Again, not to sound like a broken record, but it's going to be a function of what limited partners or investors you're working with because they're going to have different expectations. And it's also going to be a function of what environment we're in, right? Two years ago, if I were pitching you, it was going to be about yield and cash flow, cash on cash returns multi-distributions, that was when the 10-year was at sub 2%. Now with bonds and money markets giving you 5 or 6%, cash and cash yield is really kind of meaningless these days. And so now it's about total return, after-tax returns. Can I hit a good IRR, shorter-term duration, recycling that capital, which all might kind of sound like gibberish to you. But the, the point is you're going to have to do some market research my advice would be keep the terms and the fees very LP friendly and very vanilla. Because once you get into a pitch and you have some type of complex, esoteric, multi-level waterfall that you're walking people through and you're getting in granular on explaining it, your pitch is toast. And so I would just do whatever your investor base is accustomed to, plain middle of the fairway, vanilla. For us, it's like a one and a half and a 20% over an eight, which again, might not mean anything can to you, you, but- Can you break that down yeah. into layman's terms? <laughs> so we chart, if you give us a dollar, 
we charge one and a half percent annually as an asset management fee that comes out of cash flow from the property, which is on equity in the deal. We have to give you that dollar back. Then we're promising you an 8% preferred return, annualized, compounded. Okay. Which means that if we hold the property for 10 years, I give you your dollar back, and then I give you 8% annually. Okay. So we're talking 8 cents. So that's 80 cents over a 10 year period. So now I owe you a dollar 80. Anything above that dollar 80 return of capital, we split 20% to the operator, sponsor, general partner, manager, the person running the deal. 80% goes to the investors pro rata based on the amount of capital they've committed in the deal, which I know sounds like a lot. Like for me and Logan and Tyler, this is just table stakes that we throw these terms around. It can be very confusing. I would definitely recommend reaching out to some resources on YouTube that can explain these things. Visuals, I think, are very helpful. But my main takeaway is here, especially when you're starting out, don't get too fixated on having a super complex process or system when it comes to economics and fees. Just do what your investors are going to feel comfortable with because the the focus on the pitch should be on the management team and the investment thesis and the business plan and the opportunity set should not be on structure and fees. So what I talked about earlier, my first capital raise, we raised a fund that was stupid. We shouldn't have done that. It was the fund vehicle for what we were doing, who we were talking with was a suboptimal and expensive investment vehicle. We should have just do, been doing single purpose vehicle into the LLCs, right? We've learned that over time. So you can talk offline about like what all these fees look like and it can get really complicated really quickly. But my main takeaway is keep it simple. Keep people within their comfort zone when it comes to fees. Because I think the first five or 10 minutes, if it gets jammed up on fees and the pitch and the conversation, it's going to be a hard conversion for you. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, some of the deal structures that I've seen come across my desk, it makes me wonder how these guys ever get anybody to commit a dollar to their deals because they've got this waterfall based on this IRR. And if they hit this, then you'll get this percentage return. But I mean, it, it just, it, it was a Don Miller who says, if you confuse, you lose. I mean, yeah. it, it couldn't be more true in a scenario like this because most people already don't understand IRRs. They get cash on cash returns. And so if you're going to start basing waterfalls on a certain IRR, which you can actually kind of manipulate as a general partner, then it, you're going to have people that don't want to invest with you. I'm right there with, go ahead, Brian. Well, and well, and what Logan said earlier, I think is easy to say, hard to do in practice because we all want to prove how smart we are. If your marketing materials, if they aren't accessible to a fifth grader, it's too complicated. And I'm including institutional investors in this. So like, if I go to my 10-year-old and I explain to him how the deal works and he doesn't understand it, I've got to get simpler. And that's not a shot against your investors. That's just the reality of any marketing materials that you're putting out there, regardless of what widget you're selling. People get intimidated really easily. And if they get intimidated and scared, they go primal and they run away. And that's the last thing you want to do. Yeah. Logan, what, what are your thoughts? So 
WIIFM is everyone's favorite radio station. What's in it for me? So remember the why, how, what framework that I presented previously. And the what is in this scenario would be what the returns are for an investor. So if somebody's really interested in trying to clearly communicate the returns for a, a, a real estate project, you better know what IRR is, how it's calculated, what cash on cash is, what a preferred return is, because preferred return is often misunderstood in our business. And I've had to spend a lot of time communicating that it is a hurdle rate and we pay distributions out of the dis distributable cash flows. And that may not be what the preferred return is. And it doesn't start until X, Y, and Z period because of X, Y, and Z. So IRR, cash on cash, equity multiple is the other one. And so if you can understand what a preferred return, what those are, and clearly communicate those. Ask chat GPT, hey, I'm trying to understand what these four return metrics are. Explain it to me like I'm a fifth, I'm a fifth grader and see what it, it spits out to you. And that's how we go and communicate this back to investors, right? And then, okay, so they understand that and then they start to compare, right? Because that's how our brains work. So they're like, okay, well, if I can, if my equity multiple is two over five years, can I do that in the stock market? Can I do that in other ventures? Okay, tell me how do we get there? And then boom, now they're asking you questions about how you actually get to those numbers into the project. And then they say, oh, well, why would I want to do this again? What are you invest? What are we investing in? Right. And then they, then you get them on board with the thesis. So sometimes that framework can work backwards if you're in a communication with another individual. And so you have to always be thinking about that. But I would say this, you need to get really clear on how to communicate what those return metrics actually mean. And then when somebody asks you, well, how are you going to do that? You need to have really reputable information and hopefully proven on previous projects that you can point to of how you're actually going to get to those things. The last thing I'll say about this is we typically, at least myself, I do not get stuck in the analyst frame. I just stop doing it because I, in the analyst frame, being somebody who wants to negotiate about every sell and every assumption. And so I try to say, okay, look, there are a lot of key assumptions that can be made here. Let's start there and agree with those. And so actually on my pitches, we'll have a slide that has the key assumptions that are going to manipulate those return metrics mostly. And so I then get buy-in with them on, do you believe that this exit cap rate is conservative? And do you believe that we can achieve these rental rates based on these comparable projects? And do you think that this will take six to eight months? And then that's when I start to really get kind of the information out of an investor of what they're actually thinking about. And I'm not just sitting there talking and glossing over what their actual hot buttons are. But if you can't communicate what those return metrics are very clearly and concisely in a, in a short duration, and you stumble over that, you're going to lose people from day one because our minds are also attracted to numbers. So they're going to flip through it. They're going to look at the pictures and then they're going to go to the last slide and they're going to say, what's in it for me? And they're going to look at the numbers and then they're going to start comparing. And then if you can get them over that, then they're going to ask, how are you going to get there? And then why should I do that? Yeah, I like that. I'm going to go back and, and probably reformat my offering memorandum to put just in big, bold letters on like the second page, like all the returns, sample $100,000 pitch. Because I've got it, mm -hmm. but it's later in the deck. 
And I like how you just said that, like catch them with the returns, get them to start thinking, can I get this anywhere else? Now I want to dig further into this offering memorandum. All right, we've got like two minutes left. We've got two questions in the live chat. So let's do a lightning round uh, to get these answered. Joe is asking, could I simply find one investor to JV with to acquire three multifamily properties doing a burr strategy and live on my passive income? <laughs> I'll let either one uh, of y'all take it. <laughs> okay. My, my, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask one question back and I'm going to let Brian take it. Can I find one supplier for wood decking to replace all of the decks on 1,500 units in uh, Kansas City alone? The answer is no for me. So I'll let Brian, and, and I could have asked a million different, that question in a million different ways, but that's my uh, opinion. Yeah. If, if this business is how I pay my personal mortgage and take care of my children and feed and clothe them, do I want to be beholden to one investor? Ask yourself that. Yeah. Uh, I feel- and, and the the retrade possibility is like enormous downside risk for you. And if you don't think those JV guys are going to retrade you, they will trade their grandmother for a shekel on the street in Manhattan. I promise you they'll rip your face off. I would just not know. It's a bad idea. Sorry. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it comes down to your relationship with them. Like, look, if it's your dad and you have a great relationship with them, then yeah, may- maybe, right? But Brian's absolutely right. I mean, these guys will wait until you're, you've got hard money in the deal. You're 24 to 48 hours out from closing. They know that they're the only guy that's going to come in and save you, and they're going to tr- retrade you on every single aspect of the deal. Actually, we're going to give you 5% instead of the 20% we agreed on, and you're going to be class B shares compared to our class A. I mean, there, there's all sorts of things that they'll do just because they know they've got you in a, in a corner. So just be careful with that. Oh, uh, let's see. I know there was another one on here. Oh, would you guys recommend using an equity broker? They typically charge 2 to 3%. I've never used one. I have always tried, and it's never worked out. What's y'all's experience with it? Equity Waste. brokers want to place the debt. That's what they want to do. They want to place your first lien mortgage, and they will all say, I have 75 uh, groups to talk to about equity, but we have to do the debt in place, and that's going to limit your options in regards to that. That's been my experience. So yeah, Brian, go ahead. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. They're mortgage brokers pretending to raise capital, and they are going to want to place the debt for you. And if they say they have equity resources, they're lying. And more importantly, public service announcement, never enter into a retainer agreement with anybody who is willing to offer you capital raising services, at least negotiate a straight up success fee, because otherwise it is just a straight up cash grab. Legitimate placement agents don't work with groups under 350 to $500 million mandates, period. Yeah. I mean, these guys all want to get you locked into a contract so that they know. I mean, again, it's the same thing as the JV situation. Like they want to get you locked in so that you have no other resources and then you're desperate to use them. You can Google the top 100 private equity 9010 allocator funds in America and you can call them yourself if that's really what you want. Awesome. Well, guys, we are one minute over the hour, so we're going to go ahead and call it. Audience, we will be back in two weeks, September 25th, diving into different commercial real estate asset classes and how to pick the right one for you. We will see y'all then. Thanks for joining us this week. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. 
And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 